Jesus' name, we just bind the strong man away today. We rebuke the spirits of discouragement and despondency and depression. We command them to be broken off of us. The weariness of those who have just feel like they're just worn out, trying to stand in Jesus' name. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It's written in the word of God, and we, we claim it and we pray right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, we appropriate I feel the Spirit of God is doing something right now in somebody's heart. He wants to do a real work in somebody's heart right now. I've not had freedom to just close in prayer. I, I, I want, if there's somebody here that God's dealing with, be, be open to the Lord. Just, just release yourself to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I can't do it, but you can. And I just yield to you. I, I give you permission. I give you permission to take charge of my life. Let him know that right now. I give you permission, Lord, to take charge of my life. I don't want this stuff here any more than you do, and I ask you to take it away. I give you permission to take it away. I want to have victory in my life. Is God saying that to someone this morning? Somebody here is struggling? Anyone? Yes. God bless you. God, we just give her victory. We just claim victory for them right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. They're not going to struggle anymore. We release them. In Jesus' name. Lord, you know the need right now. In Jesus' name. It's broken. In Jesus' name, it's broken. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Christ. How the Word of God is taught that the old nature dies 
that you, your former obligation to respond to the old nature is gone. You don't have to respond anymore. You do not have to submit to the enemy anymore. And Christ permanently destroys the sin's nature's power to control you. Now the Spirit of God can take control of your life. Even though a struggle continues, and that struggle is only going to be overcome when by faith we claim what God's Word says is available to us today. And that is that there is no temptation that has taken us, but such as is common to man, that God is able to make a way of escape for us. The same scripture that tells us that God will give our feet room to maneuver whenever problems come is not hopeless. We're not trapped. We do not have to be defeated. We can find room to get around. If we'll seek God, he'll give us a way out. And that whenever the enemy comes in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard. Now, we begin to confess this. We begin to believe this. We begin to declare it with our mouth. We begin to call on him. He says, call unto me, and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. This new power that comes into our life, God sends his Holy Spirit to assist us. God sends his angels to protect us. And we can begin to operate by a new principle here, a new law that emerges. It's the law of life in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Walking in, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And when we do that, suddenly there comes a new awareness in our life that we are to be examples unto others in all that we do and say. And we talked about the first three of these examples of the decisions we have to make, principles of Christian love. Not, I can do whatever I want to now, I'm a Christian, I'm free, I'm released, I, I mean, you're not going to bring me into bondage. This is not bondage, this is love. This is the response of love. How many of you know that if you wanted to, many times you could speak back very harshly to someone they speak to you? Why don't you? You have the freedom, you have the right, they said that to you, you can say it to them, because there is an element of love there and respect for that other person and their, their image of themselves. And Paul says that should extend to every area of our life. And the person is, what will, I, what, will what I'm about to do have a tendency to enslave me? I was in bondage, I don't want to come back into bondage. Whether it's a person, place, thing, relationship, property, whatever it might be, we don't dare, dare allow anything to come into our lives that will enslave us. And we've talked a lot about that. The second one, what will what I'm about to do build up my body, mind, and spirit? It doesn't make any difference whether it feels good to do it or not. The question is, what is it doing for me? Not short-term decisions, but we said long-term decisions. Will it bring me into more bondage? Will it cause me to be a less of a testimony for Christ? Will it keep me from the edge of between the world and, the, and being a Christian? Rather, to step clear away from it and come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. The third one, what, will what I am about to see, read, or do cause others to stumble over me? It isn't, the, the, Paul says, the question is not, what is it right? The question is not, am I allowed to do this? The question is, if in my doing it, will there be someone else that might be hindered or someone else that might stumble because of it? Those are the things we covered before. Now, the one we want to talk about this morning is, can what I am about to do be fitted into the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, and then I got started. Now I'll read 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 23 down through 31. Heavenly Father, minister the word of God to our hearts this morning, I pray, that it will become critical in our lives. So what you have to say to us as believers that we'll walk in the light as you're in the light. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the principles of your word. You told us that we walk in the principles of your word that we'll be free, that we'll know victory in our daily lives, that the enemy will not defeat us. And I pray in Jesus' name we'll learn these principles and allow them to become the ruling factor in our lives that we might be indeed free to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning with verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. 
All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. See, that was principle number one and principle number two, those two portions of that verse. Paul says, let no man seek his own, but every man another man's... Now, the King James says wealth, but a better translation of that is another man's welfare. Let every man, but every man another's welfare. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking, that's, that's actually in the marketplace, whatever is sold in the marketplace, eat, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. How many of you know there's a lot of Christians today that couldn't possibly fulfill this scripture? How many of you know there's some Christians that just absolutely would refuse to? You know why? Because they've got, when they've been grown up as children, they told them, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want any of that. And they could not possibly go to a banquet and do what Paul says we're supposed to do here. That's why I've always said, teach your children to eat anything and everything. You say, well, I don't eat everything. Well, your parents didn't do a good job when you eat it. You need to learn how to eat everything so when you go to someone's home, you'll not offend. You know, if you had been called a mission, as a missionary like one woman I know over in Indonesia, you'd have really been in trouble. Because in order to get become part of, uh, friends with the tribe and be accepted by the tribe, she had to sit down next to this big tribal chief that had pig grease rubbed all over his body, and he would reach out and rip a piece of, of pig meat off of the uh, rotisserie where they're roasting his pig, roll it up on his big black leg with all that grease, uh, uh, pig grease all over him, and open her mouth and plop it in there, and she had to be able to chew that and swallow it. Now, can you imagine what would have happened to some of our young people down there? I don't like that. They'd say, well, that's good. We'll use you for supper then. How would that be? But Paul says, whenever you have to come to a place where you're able and willing to eat whatever's put before, because God's made everything, he said, it's all good for you, whether you like it or not. I'm reminded of our past president who said he didn't like broccoli. And as I just told you the other day about the man that was offered some broccoli, he said, no, thank you, I've already had some. And hostess said, I didn't see you take any. He said, no, when I was nine or ten, I had some. That's, that's how We've we got to get rid of that mentality. We've got to learn to eat whatever is placed in front of us. It's good for us, good discipline for us. Now I'll quit midland and go back to preaching. But if any man says unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker... Why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Now we just read to you 1 Corinthians 10.31. And I'm going to read it again. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that's the thing we've been talking about. And we have to keep this all in balance. We can have bondage one way or the other. If we're to the place we can't do anything for fear that somebody else is going to say something about it, <clears throat> or to come to the place where we say, I couldn't care what anyone else thinks, I'm going to do my own thing. We have to be very careful that our thoughts are, first of all, consistent with and uplifting the Word of God at all times. If the word says it, then we can have freedom to begin to move in that direction if it doesn't cause another brother to stumble. And if it's attracting others to Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things that we can do that may not necessarily attract others to Jesus Christ. And we have to say, is it worth it to do, have the freedom to do those things if I am going to love others more than myself? And we have to be able to encourage the weaker saints. And if we don't, we're not operating out of love according to the word of God. I'm talking about, first of all, our thoughts. We have to control our words. 
I've gone to the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, the reason this is so important, what you and I speak, is because those that study the mind say that seven-eighths percent, seven-eighths of the mind is subconscious. What we're operating on on a daily basis of our conscious mind is one-eighth of all the ability to perceive and grasp things. About seven-eighths of what we grasp is from the subconscious. And that's why many times we'll push things back into the subconscious and not remember it in our conscious mind, and many times it has to take counseling to bring it back up again because we bury it back there in the very back of our minds, and uh, the, the subconscious never forgets. The subconscious is like a computer that cannot be shut down. It's there all the time, and it can change your living, it can change your acting, it can change your thinking, and that's why you have to be constantly speaking to yourself. What are you doing? You're speaking to that subconscious, that place where many fears and many phobias and many questions and many doubts there might be. You have to begin to speak to that, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And again, I say we have to be careful the words we speak to ourselves and the words we speak to others. If you, many, of you, many of you have experienced this, let alone heard it, where parents will constantly talk down to a child. You're no good, you're worthless, you'll never make it. That goes into the subconscious. And it almost creates a predetermined defeat, defeat mechanism in that child. No matter what he tries to do, back in the subconscious, it'll always be that you're not going to make it, you can't make it, you're no good. And oh, that can only be renewed by the Word of God, replacing those negatives with positives. And so it's very important with our words, and then with our actions, and then with our attitudes. You know, many times, it isn't what you and I say, it's the attitude that we display. I've had people that come around and say, praise the Lord, but you can watch them and they just watch their attitude and you can tell there's a struggle going on there. And we have to watch our attitude as a witness and testimony does it. Well, once in a while I can be ticked off if I want to be. Yes, you can, but you have to be careful because that can cause someone else to say, oh, I, I thought he loved me, I thought she loved me, but man, I mean, they're, they're, really, they're really harsh. No, I don't think you have to go around with a the, with the smile taped on your face all the time. But I think there should always be the joy and expectancy that Jesus Christ is reality in your life. And whatever my problem might be, he's greater than that problem. He is the solution. People is, are not my solution. Jesus Christ is the solution to the needs of my life. And I am trusting him every moment. I, I told you before, and I'll tell you again, of a pastor I knew in Minnesota, precious brother, not very well educated, but boy, was he plugged into Jesus Christ. And I, when I would go to him and say, in the midst of when I knew he was in the biggest storms, I'd say, how's it going, Gordon? He says, the future's as bright as the promises of God. Bless God, we're going over. We're not going under. We're not going around. We're going straight through. Jesus is sufficient. And he never changed. Always that way. How many Christians you know that whenever you see them, you, you just know what to expect? I mean, you can just look at it right there in the office. And then how many Christians you know you say, where, do, where are they today? You know, where did they go today? Oh, you ever seen that time? You must ask the Lord to stabilize you, and the only way you can do it is to put the Word of God down into your heart. Put the Word of God down in your heart. What does God say about me? God loves me. God says that He's going to be with me. He says I can succeed, that I'm a, a king's kid. And then we reflect that with those around about us. No, we don't have the freedom and the privilege of saying what we think all the time. We really don't. And how many of you know we all do that? We have to go back and say, will you please forgive me? How many of you know that there's no one here that hasn't done it from time to time, hasn't sinned, hasn't failed? But it should become the practice of our life that we put into our spirit constantly that positive reaffirmation of who we are in Jesus Christ. When other people come around, it doesn't make any difference what we're going through. 
say to someone, how's it going? Oh, I mean this problem. Oh, that problem. Oh. And they begin to, they'll just tell you all the problems they're running into. And you wonder, is there ever victory? The non-Christian looks at them and says, do I need that? I'm not trying to belittle the problems that Christians have. But how many times have you heard a Christian say, well, I'm okay under the circumstances? I don't know how many times I've had to say to them, circumstances are like a mattress. You don't get under them, you'll smother you. Get on top of them. And ask the Lord, tell the Lord that he is greater than all those problems you and I have and that he's promised a way out and that he's promised to make a solution for us. So the Lord will deliver us out of all our troubles. How many? The Lord will deliver us out of all our troubles. So when we're around other people, we don't have to let the attitude of, Oh, woe is me. I mean, there's a cloud over my head, and every step I take, I'm going to go down into a pit and all this. No, I am trusting the Lord for this moment. I don't know what's going to happen in five minutes from now, but in five minutes from now, I'll say the same thing I'm saying right now. Jesus is sufficient. Now, when we do that, and we walk away, people say, wow, wow. I would to God I had that kind of thing. And you can tell them, hey, it's an open book test. Read it for yourself. It's there. You can have it. By faith, you reach out and you claim it, and you declare it. Then the fifth one. If still in doubt, concerning these other four, if still in doubt, I will give God the benefit of the doubt. Philippians 3, 8. Now Paul has already talked about being lawful and expedient, lawful and edifying not. It will it cause someone to stumble? Is it for God's glory? It should not be. You ever have any questions about the rest of those things? Well, I don't know that it's going to fit in here or fit in here. He says, give God the benefit of the doubt. How many of you know what I'm talking about by giving God the benefit of the doubt? How many people do you know if someone comes and says, well, such and such said thus and such? You say, you know, I really have a problem with that. I, I, I really don't think they said that. Why? Because I know them. If they said it, they didn't say it in that way. What are you doing? You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. And when it comes to the question of, well, can I do this or can I not do this or should I say this or should I not say this? Should I act like this or should I not act like this? Should I go here or should I not go here? It says there's ever a question about it that it would in any wise affect another believer. Give God the benefit of the doubt. Philippians 3.8 I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now this is one of the only times Paul ever used his whole title there. Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as dung that I may win Christ. Now that word in the, uh, in the Greek is actually refuge or awful or waste whatever they would throw away he said it's just absolutely useless. All those things that were so important. Now, now stop and think about what Paul's saying here. Here he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was in a leadership position. He could have been taken up to the very top of the Sanhedrin. And when he turned to Jesus Christ, I imagine his family had a funeral for him. I imagine as far as they were concerned, he was dead. He no longer existed. I think he lost all of his friends. And let me tell you something. In the Jewish community, they're very close especially amongst the Pharisees. They were a group that just really hung together. And he said, I had to give up all that stuff. And he said, it's like dung. has no value whatsoever. And I've heard of Christians say, well, you know, since I've become a Christian, you know, I, I have, I've lost my friendship with all these people over here, and I, and I want to say dung. Well, I used to have some real influence over here in this group, and I said dung. That's what I'm saying in my mind, dung. Some say, what's dung, manure? It's a stinky mess, is what he said. To me, it's just like a stinky mess. That's quite a statement, isn't it, for a man? Come out of that position, lose all that prestige and all that power. He says it's nothing. It's less than nothing. Let me read it to you from the Living Bible. Yes, everything else is worthless 
when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What a powerful statement. What have you and I given up that we feel like we've really sacrificed in coming to Jesus Christ? What possession may we have given up? I've known of millionaires in the past whom God has spoken to and said, I want you to be a missionary. They have gone down into the poor areas and given away everything they've owned, gotten on a ship or a plane and gone to the mission field and just barely made it through. And you say, oh, what a sacrifice. Dung, manure. But there's many today, if Jesus would lay his hand on them right now and say, I want you to go and do thus and such for me. Oh, it's taken me so long to get all this stuff. I mean, after all, I'm just in a position right now where I could be promoted and I might be in the next level of, uh, of importance here in the company. I mean, one of these days I might get to the very top. And Paul the Apostle from the portals of heaven screams down, Manure! That's nothing compared with the glory that shall be revealed in that day. Give God the benefit of the doubt. Paul says, Everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have put aside all else counting it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ. In the places I go, in the things I see, in the things I say, I reject whatever causes doubt. Because the word of God says, He that doubteth is condemned, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The money, the talent, the time, the things that I give to the Lord's work, they're nothing in, in comparison to the, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, I, I gave until it hurt. I know we're supposed to give until it quits hurting. We're supposed to give until it's a joy to give to the Lord's work. Time, talent, money. Many times we say, I am just so busy. If we're too busy to serve the Lord, we're too busy. Paul says, I laid down everything else, nothing else was this valuable to me in comparison to my relationship to Jesus Christ. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children, brothers, sisters, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. All relationships have to become secondary. If any man comes to me and is not willing to take up his cross daily and follow me, in other words, die to himself totally and to his ambitions and his goals, he can't be my disciple. Whosoever he be of you that does not forsake all that he, all that he has, deny ownership. I don't own anything. Jesus Christ owns me and everything I have, I'm a steward of Jesus Christ. If we don't do it, he says you can't be my disciple. I'll tell you something, this is not pop Christianity. This is not pop Christianity. You see what do you mean by that? Superficial, contemporary, palatable to everybody. It's not cheap grace. This is a Christian walk. This is New Testament Christianity. And they're all based upon the conviction that my activities must never weaken the scriptural conviction of another Christian. That I will build all my goals and my priorities around Christ's priorities. When this becomes... A conviction, not a preference. When this becomes a conviction in our life, the church will come out from under the world's table and turn the world upside down. When we begin to operate by these five biblical principles of Christian love, the world will take notice that something that we have been with Jesus. And I don't believe they will until they see that operating in our lives on a daily basis. And Paul the Apostle said, everything else is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I put aside all else, counting it worth less than nothing in order to have that I have Christ. And I'll announce that there's a 6 o'clock service tonight in this church. And everybody will forget all about this verse that I just read. I will lay aside everything else, counting it worth less than nothing in order that I... You say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with have a relationship. Oh, it does. 
It says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in some manner. You know, if I preached this 40 years ago, everybody said amen. Today, everybody says, you don't know my schedule. You don't know how tired I am. You don't know how weary I am. You don't know what it's like. You know, what's happened? Well, the Bible has to change because we're in the 90s. The Bible doesn't change. And by the way, tonight, I'm going to be teaching on one of the central themes that makes this church different from any other theme. That's the seventh conviction tonight. If you have any part in Calvary Baptist Church and you feel like you're part of this body, you need to understand this teaching and you need to be able to know how to declare this position. So if anyone asks you, where are we unique? Where are we different? You need to be here for that starting tonight. And I know that God will, will help us keep our hearts and minds open to this and we'll be able to minister to others. It's true. I just want to interject that. I will charge extra for that. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. This is the capstone to these five principles. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Another translation says, keep your eyes open for spiritual danger. Quit you like men. Behave like men. Be strong. Let all your things be done with charity or love. Let me read that again. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let all your things be done with love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I give my body to be burned and have not love, I'm nothing. This is not bondage. This is not legalism. This is love. I will respond to others. I will love Jesus first, others second, me third. Paul the Apostle said, if eating meat or drinking wine or any, this is, this is brought, any other thing that I might try to do would cause somebody else to I just won't do it for the rest of my life. Why? It's not worth it in comparison to my right relationship with Jesus Christ. Powerful. Powerful principles here. Not of legalism and bondage, they're principles of love. Paul says it over and over again. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. They won't be grievous to you. It's a teaching that meant so much to me when I first went to Bible college because I kind of always did my own thing. But they began to make me realize I have to consider the needs and weaknesses and problems that other people have. And when we do, God doesn't say this to make us miserable. When we do this, God makes us blessed. He says, you won't give up anything, even a glass of cold water in the name of a disciple, without getting a reward for it. And I'll tell you something, there isn't anything I can think of on this earth that I would have to give up that will compare with what I'm going to get when I get to heaven. Nothing. Paul says, how can others see Jesus in us? Love them. Let supernatural love be, your manif be manifested out of your life. So they'll see it. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God that is true. And even though we're free, Jesus Christ has set us free, it doesn't mean we're free to have a license. We have liberty, but that liberty must have its bounds because of how it may affect others and influence others. I pray that you'll make us consciously aware of this. And then in our daily walk, in our daily walk, we'll put Jesus Christ and the, the fellowship of God's people and the spiritual things of life so far ahead of anything else that there will be no comparison. We thank you, Father, for Paul's faithfulness. We thank you for the way he looked back and saw what he'd given up and said, it's worthless, it's nothing. 
I pray that Jesus Christ will become that precious to us today that every other relationship, every other association, every other demand on our life will have to take its place. God's Word, fellowship of God's people, and being taught and edified in the things of the Word of God will take a priority in each one of our lives. And it will be passed on to our children. They'll realize this is not a preference, this is a conviction that we have to fellowship with God's people, that we have to be that example to others around about us in word and deed and all that we do. Father, I pray that you will challenge our hearts. The Calvary Baptist Church will be known as a church that loves a church that is considerate and sensitive to the needs of other people. I pray, Father, that you'll cause us to reach out and love other people and let them see the love of Christ in our lives. In Jesus' precious name we ask you. With your head bowed and your eye closed, may I just ask this morning, I just, just want to see what God the Spirit wants to do this morning. To any that would say, Pastor, the Spirit of God has spoken in my heart about some areas in my life that I need to rearrange and the priorities I need to rearrange that I need to begin to speak more faith down into my subconscious, into my spirit, into my soul, so that I can have the Word of God as an anchor there for all my thoughts. God spoke in my heart this morning. I want you to agree with me that God's going to give me victory in those areas. I see your hand. Yes. God bless you. I see those. Yes. Praise the Lord. God's speaking to hearts this morning. Only the Word of God can change us. Only the Spirit of God can change us. We can't do it as the flesh. But he said if we hide the Word away in our heart, he'll change us. Father, you see every hand this morning, but beyond that, you see the heart. And I thank you for the every heart here. Thank you for those who raised their hand and said, Lord, I really want you to do a work in that area of my life. In Jesus' name, I come into agreement with them right now, right where they are. That you'll change them and they'll not be the same again. They'll not allow the circumstances and the conditions around them to control them. But they'll put Jesus Christ and his word first in their life. You said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things, all this other manure will be added unto you as God thinks you need it. But Lord, we know you don't take anything away from us for what is for our good. And you won't put anything in our hands for what you, is for our good. And so we can trust you and put you first and believe that you'll take care of all the other circumstances. In Jesus' precious name we ask you. Amen. covered six now, the last two being my grandchildren and grandchildren belong to God, and it's my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, basic convictions, talking about building strong families. The sixth one is my activities must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. We finished that this morning. This one is my marriage is a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner. Now, you'll hear many, many pastors preaching on marriage and divorce, and they will start off very strong on this very subject. It is for life. It is for life. It is a covenant agreement. It is something that God himself established in the garden. It is until death do us part. And then somewhere, way off in some strange area, they reach out and pull in a big but and say, but, and then they take off in another direction. And I want to tell you that according to God's word, as best I've been able to study it, I cannot find that conjunction anywhere. I cannot find that turning point anywhere in the scripture. It's not popular to say that, but I don't find it. And I have challenged people for years now to show me where it is in the word of God. 
And I, uh, I want to teach you something right now on this subject to start off by saying that we are absolutely in the minority position when we teach this. No question about it. If we're talking about our marriage being a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner, there are many people today that do not want to hear that truth. But the Word of God is very, very clear that this is what it teaches. Now, I say it's a minority view because you will find, and I, I can tell you right now, if you want to go down the street and talk to other pastors, they'll tell you, no, I don't believe this. And yet, if you show them, ask them, please show me where, in most cases, they'll not want to get involved in talking with, they've not wanted to get involved in talking to me about it. I've actually had pastors in the area say, I know what you teach. And I said, tell me what I teach. And they said, you teach this. And I said, that's not what I'm teaching at all. Well, I know you teach this. And I said, that's not what I'm teaching at all. Well, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my book, you read it, and then you'll know what I'm teaching and we can talk about it. And they said, I'm not the least bit interested in reading your book. That amazes me. That just amazes me, that kind of a response. But I want to go on and say that, thank God, down through these years now, I have been finding scores of pastors and Christian people who have come back and said, this is what God has shown us way before we met you, that we know this is what God's Word has to say. And I don't know if some of you remembered or not, but years ago, the statement was, the prophecy was made over me. By, I don't remember who it was. Someone that was just talking to me one day said that in the days ahead that God was going to use me, and didn't say how, but to draw together those of like heart and mind to establish a stronghold to be able to teach this truth and to establish families and homes in the church again. Now, I don't know when or where or how that's going to happen. I'm not going to try to make it happen. But God's going to have to do it himself. But I do now have contact with many people around the country. And if one of these days God allows me financially to do so, I would like to bring them together and begin to establish a network that we can begin to get this word out more and more. I say it's a minority view, but that doesn't usually scare me because every time you read the word of God, almost every time there's a crowd, the crowd's wrong. It's always been the minority that's been correct. You remember Gideon, for example, with the Midianites? Remember that story? How God had them call all the, the uh, men to war, and when they got there, God said, you've got too many men. Tell those that are afraid to go home. And of the 32,000, 22,000 went home. Gideon said, great, now we can go on. He said, no, he's still got too many. He says, have them go out and take a drink at the creek down at the stream there, and if they... If they get down and put their faces in the water, send them home. If they pick up the water and watch while they're drinking and they're careful, you keep them. Of the 10,000, 9,700 stuck their face down in the water and were careless. And he has left with 300 men. He was a definite minority, but he was in the will of God, saying, doing what God told him to do. And 120,000 of the Midianites were slain. And they didn't have to do any of it. They slew one another because God was in it. You remember Joshua and Caleb, the story of Joshua and Caleb, how the ten witnesses or the ten spies that went into the land came, but of the twelve that went into the land, ten came back and said, oh, we're grasshoppers in their sight. And Joshua and Caleb said, they're grasshoppers as far as I'm concerned. God told us we could take it, let's say we take the land. Consequently, all of Israel listened to the ten, and they were sent into the wilderness for 40 years. And the ten that made that false witness, God destroyed them suddenly with a plague. They, Joshua and Caleb were in the minority, but they were the only ones that were left of that generation. All the rest of them died off, and they went back into the promised land with God because they believed God for it. Elijah on the mountaintop with 300 other the prophets of Baal. He was in the minority, but he was speaking for God. And the scripture tells me that all 300 of the prophets of Baal were destroyed because he was willing to stand up and say what God told him to say. 
The second thing I want to share with you is our position concerning the Word of God. First of all, Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I have found a long time ago, I don't have to prove this, all I have to do is declare it, and the Spirit of God will pierce down into the hearts of men and women and put a hook in them that they can never get away from. It may take them years, but sooner or later the Spirit of God will bring them to the place where they have to be confronted and face this truth. In Psalm 12, 6, the Scripture says that the, the Word of God is like silver seven times refined. You don't have to add to the Word, you don't have to take away from the Word if we just say what the Word says. Now, I hope you'll notice as we go through this study on marriage and divorce that I do not try to interpret the Scripture. I simply quote the Scripture. There are some people who say, well, you're interpreting that. That's your interpretation. And I say, I'm sorry, I'm not interpreting anything. I'm just quoting exactly what the Word says verbatim. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If we have the Word of God hidden away in our hearts and we will treat the Word of God properly, correctly uh, interpreting it, we don't have to apologize at all. And then the command that comes from the Lord is found in 2 Timothy 2.15 for you and me. Now, I'm not trying to tell you what you have to think. I'm telling you what God has shown me in the Word. And then it's up to you to go home and study the Scriptures for yourself and see if these things be so. And that's what Paul said. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Now, I want to tell you something. There are, there are many churches today, when they get on this subject, you feel like they should have the, the uh, wrought iron uh, workshop sign out on the front of the church. Because there's much twisting and turning that's done when you get on this subject. They try their best to try and twist the word around as much as they can to get it to say what they want it to say. I don't say that critically. I say that's just plain observation. When you see, finally see what the clear word of God has to say. The third thing I want to talk to you about that is a danger today is tradition. Look at Matthew. Matthew 15. Jesus dealt with this his whole time here on earth. The tradition of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the wooden seas, and the couldn't seas, as one fellow said. He's constantly dealing with them concerning all their traditions. Matthew 15, then came to Jesus the scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God with your, by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses the father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus ye have made the commandment of God of none effect by your commandment. Back in that day, they were supposed to take care of their parents, but the Pharisees and the, the Sanhedrin worked it out to where if they would come and give a gift to them that was supposed to go to their parents, they could say it was a gift to God. And they were relieved of the requirement of taking care of the parents. He said, that's your tradition and that's not what God's word says. Therefore, you're going to have to answer for it. In Colossians, and by the way, the traditions that we're running into today that's really fighting against this message is, first of all, the civil laws 
that are being established and overlaying one over another to where you cannot get through that web, and it's called no-fault divorce. Brother Lou was talking this morning in Sunday school how back in that day they had made all these uh, escape routes to get out of the marriage to where finally just about anything, if she danced before, danced in public or, or dropped her hair down in public or spoke out loud or, or spoke something strong to her husband in front of his parents, all these were reasons they could get a divorce back in that day. Well, we're almost back into that today. The trouble is, not just that the civil courts have condoned it, but now many of the evangelical churches are condoning it and many of our charismatic churches are promoting it. They have what they call singles night where they have babysitters so these divorced people can come together and get to meet each other and get acquainted and get married. And I know of one situation where they had a, a, one pastor married, remarried a woman six times in his church over a period of several years. So when you take this message to them and say, this is what God's Word says, they go into shock because they have been taught that this is okay. Heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will never pass away. Colossians, the second chapter and the eighth verse. Colossians 2.8. And all I'm going to get done tonight is just part of the introduction to lay the groundwork. Colossians 2.8. Paul said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Uh, another translation says, not, uh, Built on men's thoughts and ideas instead of on what Christ said. And this is the thing we have to be very careful of. Are we teaching what the Word of God says, what Christ himself said, or what men have said since Christ was here on earth. Very important for us to notice the difference. Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 7. Some of us are getting good teaching on the Gospel of Mark. Mark, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Let me go back to verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Same portion again now over in Mark. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the traditions of men. Now, underscore that. Laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men. That's what's exactly what's happening in this area of teaching of the Word of God as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. The Living Bible says you are simply rejecting God's laws and trampling them under your feet for the sake of tradition. We have books in our Christian bookstores that just literally break my heart nowadays. One after another that will say, and some of the titles, Growing Through Divorce, The Compassionate Side of Divorce, The God of the Second Chance, this is being spread out in our Christian bookstores where some bookstores will say, no, I don't want your book in this bookstore because it, it doesn't say what the other is saying. And I say, don't you want the other side of it? No, we really don't want to hear the other side of it. What was thrilling is when Brother Clark came here, Clark Sloan came here from Italy and found out that even though they didn't agree with this position in Italy, the largest distributor of books over there put right on the front, if you want to hear the other side that has to be said concerning marriage and divorce, you need to get this book, and they put it on the front of their catalog. I would to God that our publishers over here and our distributors over here would be that open-minded so that we can hear both sides of it. You have to be not only politically correct today, now they say you have to be religiously correct. And some of you know that I appeared on a, or uh, spoke on a uh, radio show in, in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, 
there was an out, just an outpouring of people responding to this thing. 600 and some books sold in one program, and the, the pastors in the area up there got so upset that they told the station they would sue them if they ever had me back again. They went to the bookstore and said, if you sell one of his books, we will never do business with you again. And consequently, the, the, the manager, the, not the manager, but the uh, talk show host said, we have never had such a response to any program in the history of this station. And, we, and I was told that they were still having people call in almost every day for six months later, wanting to know if they could possibly have this program again. But they can't have me back. Because of what the church, the churches are saying today. If you run out of things to pray about, you might pray that God will open that door also for me to be able to get into more radio programs like that. Now, we want to talk to the, about the hindrances that keep people from being able to hear the truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What does the Bible really say about marriage and divorce? The Bible says that, first of all, it's not the hearers that are blessed, but the what? doers. So when we hear the word of God tonight, we must obey the word of God. When we obey, there is blessing. He said, this is the good soil. The good soil are those that having heard the word, obey it. And so tonight, when I share this with you, after you have listened with a purpose of understanding, purpose of doing, and purpose of sharing it with others, then you'll be a hearer and a doer of the word. And God says blessings come from that. Now, there's a tremendous cost in following Jesus Christ. Let me say again, if you're concerned about what your neighbors and friends and relatives think about you when you share something with them that you might offend them, let me tell you again, if you preach this message, you will offend most of them. Now, you might as well just settle that in your heart. But Jesus said, if you're going to come to me, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. If any of you are not willing to take up your cross every day and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Whosoever it beeth of you that's not willing to forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when he says love or hate your father and mother, you know that you're supposed to honor your father and mother, but he, that's a comparative word. Today, it should not make any difference to us what other people think of what we're doing is pleasing God. In other words, my wife knows that she's the second, my second best friend on earth. She can't be my first best friend because I don't want to miss my, lose my first best friend. My very best friend is Jesus Christ. I already saw my second best friend, my first wife, have cancer and pass away. And when she passed away, I said, how oh, I thank God I haven't lost my very best My wife, Pat, who is here with me tonight, uh, she lost her first husband to a diabetic condition. And what a blessing it was to know that she didn't lose her very best friend. Jesus Christ is still with her. And she and I know that we are second best friends to one another. If the Lord calls one of us home, we still have our very best friend. And that's what Jesus is talking about. She knows if she were to ask me to do something contrary to the Word of God, she wouldn't have a chance. Why? Because I've committed my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I have spoken to people and had them get very upset with me. And again, I said, if I have, uh, if I have upset you, I apologize. But if it's the Word that's upset you, there's no apology needed. Because the word of God is true. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. Don't ever apologize for the truth of God's word. Now, what you've got to do tonight is settle it in your own heart. If what I'm teaching is truth, and if it is, then you become responsible to share it with others. And if you say, well, I'm not sure it is, then you better study until you are sure, because we're talking about a life and death issue here. We're not just talking about a social issue. We're talking about a life and death issue, as you'll see as we get into it tonight. The origin of marriage is found in Genesis, the second chapter. And I hope all of you brought your Bibles with you. 
And I tell people, if you haven't got a Bible that you can write notes in, get one that you can. You need to write notes in your Bible. My Bible is so worn out from writing in it. I, sometimes I write over my writings and I can't even see what I wrote before. But uh, the origin of marriage is found in Genesis, the second chapter, beginning with verse 18. And God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me. By, that way, by the way, that's singular. And help me. You see that? Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Sally and Adam and help me for him. And out of the ground of the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam uh, to see that what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowls of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help me for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man, and Adam said. Now it's very important that you see this. Underline, and Adam said. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God immediately spoke up. Therefore, he said, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, go back and see what it's there for. If you see therefore in the Bible, go back and find out what it's there for. Adam just did something that was very meaningful that made God speak up immediately. He says, therefore, what Adam had just said, he just said, I accept Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he said, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. That unit of society was instituted before there was ever a government. It's the smallest unit in all of society, and without it, society cannot exist. The Communist Party in the United States years ago wrote a Communist Manifesto, and one of the main points was, in order for communism or socialism to take over this nation, we must destroy the claptrap of the marriage and the home, the family. I want to tell you something. They've gone a long way today in our nation to do that very thing. They've redefined, if you go into the old dictionary to find out the definition of a family and come up to the present modern dictionary and find out what they're describing a family to be now, it's just about anything you want to name it. They're trying to destroy what God originally intended to be the family. And to be politically correct, you have got to go along with what they're saying nowadays. And it's a dangerous time, but you know, it's an exciting time because Jesus said this was going to happen just before he came back. I don't know about you, but I realize we're getting to the, close to the coming of the Lord, closer than we have ever dreamed possible. So the, he said here that they, the two of them became one. Now let's look over and mark the 10th chapter, and we'll see where Jesus spoke of this. Mark chapter 10, beginning of the second verse, and it'll tell you what God did there with Adam and Eve in Mark 10. Verse 2, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? What's the next two words? Tempting him. Now, what does that mean? You see, back in, in Jesus' day, there were two rabbinical schools in existence. One was called the Hillel, school of Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. The other one was Shammai, and one was conservative, and the other one was liberal. Shammai said only if your husband was a tanner and worked with 
animal hides and smells so bad you couldn't stand him, that would give you the right to, according to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, to divorce him. Hillel said if, you, if your wife dances in the street with her hair down, if she yells at you in front of your parents and embarrasses you, or if you even find a woman that looks more pleasing to you, that's grounds enough you can go ahead and get a divorce. And so these two schools of theology were in Jesus' day, and so he, they were coming to ask him this question in order to get one school or the other against him. They did it over and over again, they'd come to him. And remember when they brought him the coin and they said, first of all, they said, should we pay taxes, tempting him? They wanted to get the Roman government against him or the, the radical Jews that were trying to throw, overthrow the Roman government and get them off their back. And, so they, and he said, show me a coin. He said, whose picture's on this coin? said, Caesar's? Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. And they went away confused. And they were trying to do the same thing here to get one group or another mad at him. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? Now he went to Moses because Moses was what they called their authority at that time. And he said, And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, what? He wrote you this precept. Now I want you to remember what Jesus answered here. He wrote you this precept, not God. Moses wrote you this precept. We'll talk about that later on. We'll go back in the Old Testament where God himself separated himself from that statement in Deuteronomy 24 is coming from him. He said the only reason that Moses did that was not because God commanded him to do it, but he couldn't live with you stiff-necked people. You are so hard-hearted. We're seeing the same thing today. What are they telling us today? Well, we can't let regulate drugs, so let's just legalize them. If you want to see another example, go out on the highway. They'll say nobody's going the speed limit at 55. Let's raise it at 65. And if you try to go 65 down the road today, you might get killed from the rear end. I mean, they just fly around you all over the place, don't they? And I'm expecting for long to say, let's put it back up to 70 or 75. Because I told my wife, I said, you know, I would hate to be a patrolman out here today. How do you stop everybody? Everybody's flying by you. You see, this is what he said. Moses could not live with you because the way you were so hard-hearted, you're just going to get rid of your wives whether or no. So he made some kind of legislation so where at least they would get a piece of paper in their hand and go away saying, I wasn't, I, I was not an adulteress, but my husband just got tired of me, and now I could go in and I could marry someone else, according to Moses. But Jesus said Moses did that, and later on I'll show you where God the Father says Moses did that, and he said, that's not the way I operate, God said. Now, let's go on. Verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, just what we were talking about just a moment ago in Genesis, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, and so they are no more twain no more twain really means never again too. Now, will you put this down in your heart and hold on to it for a while? Jesus said when God joins two people, they will never again be two. One might live in Los Angeles, the other may live at the tip of Maine, but when God looks down, he sees one person. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And they two shall be one flesh, so then... They are no more or never again two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined or glued or cemented or joined fast together, it says here, let not man put asunder, chorizo in the Greek, and it means no man may separate what God has joined together. Now, I know we're going to be talking later on about divorce certificates. Let me ask you something. If God, if the government didn't make them one flesh, how can the government make them two? God made them to become one flesh. And all the government did was to recognize it and write it in their records so they would have a, a systematic society that we're living with. 
And if they didn't join them, then they can't separate them. And that's exactly what Jesus said. What God had joined or glued or cemented together, no man can put asunder. What and, and in the house the disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, that's just as clear as it can possibly be. But the important thing I want you to see is that when Adam and Eve, when Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he spoke those words of receiving uh, Eve, God immediately spoke and said, there, for, Therefore, now you become, I join you together as one flesh. It's very important that you understand that God is the one who established the marriage. And the second thing I want you to see is for life. Romans, the seventh chapter. Romans chapter 7. And by the way, I've had people say to me, now this is just your opinion. If you hear me giving my opinion on something tonight, please raise your hand and tell me that I'm giving my opinion. All the way through tonight, all I'm going to do is quote scriptures to you. I got on the radio station four years ago in Detroit. They, ha they interviewed me for two and a half hours. And I started off by reading from Luke 16, 18, and then 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about, uh, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. And people became, Are you saying? I said, No, what do you mean, am I saying? I haven't said anything. All I've done is read two scripture verses to you. Are you trying to tell us? I said, wait, I'm not trying to tell you anything. I'm just quoting Scripture. Why are you getting so upset with me? Are you against me reading the Scripture? Let me tell you something. When people don't want to do the Word of God, do what the Word of God says, they can become violent. You know, before that interview was over, they were calling the radio station, now pastors were calling the radio station, threatening to sue the radio station, calling the bookstore saying, if you sell another one of those books, we'll never buy another book from you. Pastors were calling. I wonder why it bugged him. Romans 7, 1 through 3. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. Now, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments here. He'll show you here in a few moments. He's talking about the law of the marriage that was established in the Garden of Eden. He says, How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth, but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. The law of the marriage, in other words, says, as long as her husband's alive, she is one flesh with him. Now, if he be dead, then she's loosed from him. Now, watch. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called what? An adulteress. Now, the Bible talks about the act of adultery, but here he's talking about a state of being, a condition. If while your husband is still alive, or if you're, while your wife is still alive, your first husband or first wife are still alive, you become married to someone else, Paul said that you should be called an adulterer or an adulteress. Now, I didn't say that. This is what the Word of God says. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, although she, although she be married to another man. Now, when... Two people become one flesh. Not, God not only makes them to be one flesh, but they are one flesh for life, and they cannot separate. We're going to go through all the clear verses in just a few moments and make that very clear to you. Now, in Malachi, the second chapter, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, shows again that it is for life. Verses 14 through 16, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. 
You've dealt treacherously with your wife, and she's the wife of your covenant. The, uh, the, another translation says it, that she is your wife made by your covenant vows, by your marriage vows. When the two of you make those vows together, God supernaturally causes you to be what come one flesh. Now, there'll be, I'm going to talk about later on the fact that sex does not make marriage. If it did, there would be no such thing as fornication. Now, you think about it. If two young people enter into that kind of relationship, if they automatically become one flesh, there's no fornication involved. The thing that makes two people one flesh are their commitment to each other in vow. That's what it just said in Malachi here. When they make that covenant with each other, that's why, uh, it, again, a person, the Bible talks about fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators are people that live that lifestyle. And we have many of them, young people today. And that's why the, we're having this uh, complete uh, flood of, of diseases that are going across our nation right now, especially amongst our young people. Heard the other day that it's up to 20% of our teenage young people right now have a disease they're not even aware that they have, but in the next 8 to 10 years it's going to become pandemic, it's going to become a plague throughout the United States. And it's one you don't even hear about. But you see, there, you can commit fornication, commit fornication, commit fornication. And God says you're going to be judged just as violently for that as you will for adultery. But there's a difference between fornication and adultery. When you become a one flesh with one person, then adultery is any relationship outside of that relationship with your partner, your marriage partner. And it also is if you look at another woman with lust in your heart. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, when you become one flesh, it's because you have covenanted with each other. You've made a vow. And some people do not realize how serious that is. You know, I'm sure some of you remember when in our nation, we didn't have to sign a bunch of papers when we made an agreement with someone. Your dads would probably, my fathers would probably tell you more than I could even, how they used to say, okay, John, that's an agreement. They'd shake hands. And I mean, one, either one of them would die before they'd let that agreement ever fail. Their word was their bond. Why? Where did they ever learn that? They learned that from the Word of God. You know, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no no, and anything beyond that is sin. You say, say yes to someone or no to someone, you must understand that as a Christian, that must be enforced in your life. At any cost, you've got to say, do what you said you're going to do. I could speak on that for a long time, because I'll tell you, I've had business people tell me I'd rather work with anybody than but a Christian. I think, what a horrible testimony. Look at Numbers chapter 30. Numbers chapter 30. I want you to notice this is not a suggestion now. Beginning with verse 1. And Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath what? Commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Look over in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. As we go through this, I found people, people either start saying amen or oh me. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and through 23. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee, but if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That which is gone out of thy lips thou shalt keep and perform, even a free will offering, according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. 
Another translation says, once you make the vow, you must be careful to do as you have said, for it was your choice, and you have vowed to the Lord your God. The next portion is in Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Now, I want you to, I'm trying to get these verses down into your heart so when we come to what it teaches on marriage and divorce very clearly, you realize that it's important. May I just interject this thought? There are a lot of people today that have enough religion to make them miserable and not enough to make them happy because somewhere back there they made a vow to the Lord and they've, ne- they've forgotten it, and God hasn't. I've seen a lot of people that were miserable for years and years and years, and then finally God revealed them. You made this promise. Some of you, I think, have gone to a Bill Gothard seminar, and he, he, had, he had vowed to the Lord he would do so much Bible study every day, and then he forgot it and didn't do it for almost a year. And God reminded him of it. He said, Father, I, I that sin on my part. I repent of it. And he said, I'll make it up. And he made up all those hours that he said he was going to study. And that was the launching of Bill Gothard into his ministry. And there are a lot of Christians who have made promises. Some soldier boys overseas in the military, they made vows when they're in the foxhole. God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll preach. Or I'll do this, I'll do this. They've come home and they've forgotten it. But God hasn't. He says, better never to make a vow than to make it. And then he goes on in Ecclesiastes 5 and impresses it all the stronger. Listen. Verse 4 of chapter 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay what thou hast, that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Sure, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was a, an error or a mistake. Wherefore, God should, should God be angry at thy voice and destroy, get that now, and destroy the work of your hands. It's a serious thing to make a promise to God and then not keep it. He says, I can get angry also, and if I get angry, he says, the devil won't do it. I'll do it myself. I'll destroy the work of your hands if you make a vow to me. If every young couple going to the altar would be told these verses before they walk down that altar, that aisle, that God says, you're going to make a vow to him tonight, and we're just your wit- the witnesses, and we're going to be affirming what we're hearing tonight, being spoken before God, because God and God alone to make two people one flesh. Some people say, well, our marriage was not made in heaven. I got news for you. God is the chairman of the board, and it's a non, non-stock corporation, and he's issued all the bylaws, and he has set up all the rules concerning marriage, and he says, nobody is one flesh unless I make them one flesh. And not just Christians, any man, woman on earth that's an offspring of Adam and Eve, when they come together, God says, I supernaturally, because I'm your creator, I cause you to become one flesh. Well, I didn't understand everything that I said in that vow. I had a fellow say that to me one time. I reached in the back of my Bible. I usually carry in there the vows that are usually said. I handed it to him. I said, which word didn't you understand? There's not a word in there. It's got more than three syllables. Which one didn't? Well, that is what I mean. I said, what you are saying now is that you made a vow to God, and now you don't want to pay it. I said, buddy, you are on thin ice. Because God says he personally will destroy the work of your hands. And may I just interject this? I hope i got time. Interject it. You don't even have to divorce your wife or your husband to break your vow. I'll tell you what really disgusts me today when I see people that are married and they show disrespect for each other. I've seen husbands uh, that call their wives the old lady, ma, the old woman. All kinds of disrespect. I've heard wives that have spoken of their husbands with disrespect. You know, you've just broken your vow to God. Because you said, I'll love, honor, and cherish, and protect. We have to be very careful. We need to go back and read our marriage vows every once in a while. I spoke to a man recently, and I said to him, I said, how often did you tell your wife you loved her? He said, I don't know. I said, well, let me ask you, before you married her, how many times did you tell your love? Oh, quite often. Well, what happened? Oh, I don't know. I said, yes, you do. 
I said, I'll tell you what happened. You got started thinking of yourself more than you started thinking of her. My wife will confirm this, but my first wife, were she here, she could confirm it too. I used to sit my children down and say, do you see that lady sitting right over there? That's my queen. That's my sweetheart. You'll never, ever be allowed to raise your voice to her. You'll never argue with her. If you argue with her, it'll be like slapping me in the face. And I will deal with you very severely because that's my, my sweetheart and that's my queen. My children said later on when they were in high school, they came and said, Dad, in college, they said, Dad, you'll never, never know. My son was crying when he said this. You'll never know how secure that made us feel. When we went to school and all the kids' parents were getting divorces, and we came home and you'd say, that's my queen, that's my sweetheart. We told God we would never quit allowing that, to, never, never quit saying that, that that's our queen and our sweetheart. Before we get married, I've seen guys that, you know, they'll just get out of the car and run around the car and open the door. We'll get in, honey, and try to help them in the car. You get your skirt out, but that's it. And then they close the door and they walk around and they smile. And this will happen. After they get married, they're lucky to slow down but while they get in. They already got the motor roaring, ready to take off down. What happened? Well, we got them now. See, we no, 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 no. We're love, honor, and cherish them. And the wives are to honor their husbands. You know, I, I could go on for a long time. Well, I'm going to be speaking more on that tomorrow, so we'll, uh, we'll not get into that. But I, I, it's, it's very important for us to realize we made a vow to God. And he said, if you break that vow, I personally will destroy the work of your hands. How many of you know you can't stop it if God's doing it? You can rebuke the devil all you want to, but he's going to say, uh-uh, up here. You broke a vow. Now, the next thing, the seriousness of not recognizing the importance of the marriage vow. First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. Now Paul the Apostle is speaking. By the way, Paul the Apostle said, the revelation that I have received, I went out into the Arabian desert for three years and that's where God gave me the divine revelation and the message that I have for you. I want you to know that Paul never taught anything contrary to what Jesus Christ taught. Sometimes people say, well, Christ said this and Paul said that. I said, you understand it in its proper context they're saying exactly the same thing. But listen to what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. And some would say, I had people say to me, well, yes, but this is a fine Christian couple. I mean, this divorced and remarried couple. They're just fine Christian people. They've got some wonderful Christian children here. And I say, uh, just, just a minute. Let me get something clear here now. Jesus said if you divorce your wife and marry someone else, you're committing adultery. And this is their second partner? Yes. The first partner still alive? Yes. You're calling them a Christian couple, and Jesus calls them adulterers. Well, now I'm in a real dilemma. Who am I going to believe? And Paul the Apostle says that if someone is an adulterer and has not repented of it, Oh, by the way, some people get hung up on that word repentance. You know, they think that's legalism and bondage. I've got a real simple definition for repentance. Admit it and quit it. That's repentance. You know, we don't want to admit what we're doing today. That's wrong. One radio station, one time, I didn't hear it, but I heard about it. They, they, they said, we want to have people call in today and tell us about their adulterous relationships they've had. Just so we can, maybe we can learn something from it. And they sat there talking for 20 minutes, and nobody called in. Nobody. Finally, they got an idea. They said, well, if you've just had an extramarital affair, would you call in and tell us about that? And the lights and they all lit up. Oh, don't call it what it is. Give it a nice title. You see? 